Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Brian Bible Church. Well, it's New Year's Day 2017. Happy New Year. And as usual, this is the time for my annual you need to read your Bible message. Okay? Every year at this time, we stop whatever we're doing and we spend the time talking about the book because you got to get in the book. All right? And that's important. But before we start talking about that, let me just say that this April will mark Brian's 20-year anniversary. Really hard to believe, but the conference this year will be on our anniversary. So I'd like to express my gratitude to those of you who financially support this ministry. You know, our local group here is small, and we could never do what we do without the help of you who support us on a regular basis. So I just want to thank you for your faithfulness over the years of supporting this ministry. It is greatly appreciated. I want to share with you just a little bit of a letter that we received this week. We get, I actually got another one this morning, but uh, it says, wanted to send a note and a small donation to support you and your ministry. It says, I stumbled across Brian Bible Church on YouTube channel a little over a year ago, and the ministry has truly been a blessing to my entire family. There are many occasions we have church services in the living room watching your broadcast and studying further into the messages as we move along. Your ministry has further helped to open my eyes and allowed me to challenge my own preconceived notions, especially in regard to my eschatological viewpoints. Imagine that. The Lord has opened my eyes to the preterist view through your ministry. For the first time in my spiritual life, I am no longer confused or conflicted regarding the Scripture and feel at peace and confident in His Word. Amen. That's a beautiful testimony. And like I said, I just... You know, I appreciate um, those who make that possible. Um, that is from Ohio. Um, also wanted to let you know that uh, April is our spring conference as normal. Um, we're starting on the 27th, which is Thursday night with a dinner. We always have a dinner on Thursday to kind of kick it off. Last year, about 80% of the people from the conference came on Thursday night for the dinner. This dinner is going to be a little special because that is actually the 20th anniversary of Brian Bible Church, so we're celebrating it that day. And then our conference will begin on Friday, and this year's speakers, are you ready? Jeff McCormick, our own Jeff McCormick is going to be speaking. All right. Glenn Hill, Glenn's going to be speaking. Alan Bondar from Fort Myers, Florida will be coming in and speaking. David Boone from Texas will be there speaking, and Ed Stevens from Pennsylvania will be there speaking. So those are our lineup for this year. Uh, it's going to be a great time of fellowship, a great time of teaching. Listen, details for the conference are on the home page of the website. We use that to communicate, but nobody seems to know that, okay? Because people are always saying, hey, what's going on with the conference? What are the dates? What are the times? They're all on the website. Just go to the home page. You can't miss it. It's right at the top there. Give you all the information that you need. All right. With that said, it's New Year's, like we said, and you know what that means, right? It's time when people make resolutions, usually ones they don't keep, but they resolve to give up something or to start something. You know, people do all kinds, make all kinds of resolutions. Some of them make it into February. Some of them don't get that far, all right? But if you want to make a resolution that will really make a difference in your life, I suggest that you resolve to read through the entire Bible this year. You know, it's a commitment of about 10 to 15, 20 minutes, depending on your reading skills, you know, and your comprehension level. But, I mean, 20 minutes a day, 
to go through the entire Bible. I think one of the saddest things is people who call themselves Christians and never have read the Bible. How do you know about God? How do you know what He wants for you? Maybe there's something special in that part you never read yet, you know? So we really need to get in there and read it. I think it'll, it'll change your life because, listen, and I'm totally committed to this. When you spend time in this book, you are spending time with Yahweh. Because this book is Yahweh's self-revelation. The only way you will know anything about our God is from this book. Other people can tell you about it. You know, you'll hear that. And you say, well, I go to church and the preacher tells me about the Bible. Well, you would think that when you go to church, you would be taught the Word of God. But today, many churches are really moving away from the Bible. And they're being driven by fads. Because the bottom line in many churches is just how many people can we get in here. That's what it's all about. The dictionary defines fad as a practice or interest followed for a time with exaggerated zeal. I think this could be a description of congregational life for many churches today. You know, there's a new book, there's a new program, there's a new emphasis. Every year, you know, we got something to bring them in with. You know, some of the fads that I'm familiar with, I've seen over the years, is the spiritual gifts inventory. Ever seen that? You know, you take a little test and it tells you what your spiritual gift is. I gave that test to unbelievers and they scored high on the gift of teaching. <laughs> I just thought that was a little weird, okay? You know, we got spiritual warfare series, you got promise keepers, you got way down workshop. You know what that is? That's how you lose weight with the Bible. Way down workshop, okay? Now, this one has got to be one of the worst, I think. The prayer of Jabez. Anybody heard of that? Remember the prayer of Jabez? It, it, it's the health, wealth, gospel at its finest, okay? God bless me, give me, I want, you know, Jabez prayed it, so let's pray it and we'll get everything we ever want from God. And you got the Left Behind series, you got Becoming a Contagious Christian, all kinds of pro stewardship programs. Believe me, when I was a Baptist, we went through some stewardship programs, okay? You got the Purpose Driven Life, you got 40 Days of Purpose. And there are many Christians to whom this is Christianity. This is all they know about it. You know, for decades, the church growth experts have told us that if you want to attract the unchurched, we've got to change the way we do things. We've got to offer new experiences and new settings. You know, we must meet their perceived felt needs. And we've got to do away with biblical exposition. People don't really want to know all that. We've got to focus on stories. We need to eliminate dogma and we need to become relevant. In other words, we need a me church where everybody's happy. Everybody gets what they want. And while the evangelical church has been chasing the ever-changing fads and whims of our society, I think she's jettisoned her unique message. The Christian community has something to offer that nobody else has. And that else has, and that's the truth of redemption and the Lord Yeshua the Christ. But that's only found in the Scriptures. And rather than running around trying to keep up with the world, we need to return to the one thing that strengthens the church, and that's the Word of God. Paul told Timothy, he says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of God, in the, which is 
the church of the living God. And then he says this about the church. He says it is the pillar and support of the truth. Now, in Ephesus, to those whom this letter was written, the word pillar would have had a special significance. Because the greatest glory of Ephesus was the temple of Diana, or Artemis. The temple of Diana is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And one of the features was its pillars. It had 127 pillars, every one of them a gift of a king. And they were all made of marble, and they were studded with jewels and overlaid with gold. And it may be that the idea of the word pillar here is not so much support. I think that's what ground means. But the the idea here is display. And the idea is that the church's mission is to uphold and display the truth of God for all men to see. It's to to support and display the truth. We're not the source of truth. That's the Bible. But we're to support it. We're to display it. The Bible is the Word of God, and the church is to support and display that truth. And I don't believe the church's mission has changed since Paul wrote this. We're to be the pillar. We're to be the support of the church. And this is done through faithfully expounding the truth of the Word of God. There's a huge shortage today of churches that actually teach the Bible. Most any church you find is a topical teaching church. Pick a subject. Do that subject. Alright, you do that, you're going to miss a lot of stuff in the Bible because there's a lot of subject you are not going to touch. Okay? It's it's just a topical teacher. Now, when you go through the Word of God, you've got to deal with with what's there. In his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, Neil Postman writes this, Toward the end of the 19th century, the age of exposition began to pass, and the early signs of its replacement could be discerned. Its replacement was to be the age... Of show business. And Postman is right with that assessment. In this age of show business, truth is really irrelevant. What really matters is that we're entertained, that we feel good. Substance counts for little, style is everything. What's really sad about this is that kind of thinking has crept right in the church, and the church is following the pattern of the world. We want people in here, so we want to give them an experience that they feel really blessed with. You know, and, and, you know, the person who's doing this the best is my buddy Joel. He's at the top of the charts, man. You know, he is laying it out there and the people are just coming in like crazy because he's giving them the meat church. It's all about you. I won't say anything that makes you feel bad. We won't talk about sin. We won't talk about anything. We'll just talk about, you know, God really wants to just bless you. He wants to give you everything you ever imagined. You know? Just like the me church. I'm afraid the church on a whole is forsaking its calling. It's no longer the pillar and ground of the truth. It's just a source of entertainment with spiritual things attached to it. Now, evangelicals everywhere are frantically seeking new techniques and new forms of entertainment to attract people. Man, I've heard some stuff that churches have done to attract people. You just wouldn't even believe it. But you know, whether a method is biblical or not really doesn't matter to the average church leader today. They're not interested in that. You know what they're interested in? Does it work? That's the new test of legitimacy. And so raw pragmatism has become the driving philosophy in much of the church. And pragmatism is the notion that the ideas may be judged by their practical consequences. 
A pragmatist concludes that a course of an action is right or wrong depending on the results it gets. If it gets results, it's right. Now, we know from the Bible that's not true. When Moses struck the rock, that was wrong. God told him not to. He was judged for that. Did he get water? That was his goal. He wanted water. He struck the rock. He got water. He got results. If you're a pragmatist, you say, that's okay. It doesn't matter that he disobeyed God. He got end results. It did matter. It mattered really to him. And when pragmatism becomes a guiding philosophy of life and ministry, it inevitably clashes with the Scripture. Scripture and biblical truth cannot be determined by what works and what doesn't. So why are so many churches departing from the teaching of the Word of God? I think a major problem is that most within churchianity don't really take the Bible literally. They don't take it seriously. They don't see it as the book that God wrote. They see the Bible as something that was assembled over many centuries by divided and confused men without infallible guidance of the Creator. Bottom line, I believe the church has departed from the teaching of the Word of God because we don't see the Bible as a supernatural book. Christians don't see it that way. Church leaders don't see it that way. So why spend time in it? Why devote yourself to you know all this effort to get in there and learn it and study it if you don't think it's a supernatural book? And today I want to look at some evidence that demonstrates that the Bible is a supernatural book. And my goal is that by the time we're done this morning, you know just a few of the reasons why you ought to spend time in this book. So let's look at the book. I want to give you four validating characteristics of the Bible, I think, that demonstrate its supernatural content. All right? First of all, the Bible is unique among books. I mean, any books. It's just very unique. In fact, people read and study the Bible because it is unique. It's unique in its composition. I think this is such a strong argument itself. You know, the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years. It was written on three different continents. Asia, Africa, Europe. It was written in three languages. Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. It was written by 40 different authors. All from radically different backgrounds. Fishermen, philosophers, peasants, kings, scholars, tax collectors, poets, statesmen. It's divided into 66 smaller books, yet there is a continuity, there's a consistency of one common theme woven throughout its pages. That right there tells us this book is supernatural. I mean, you get all three authors today to write a book together and they're disagreeing just among themselves, you know, right then and right there at that time. 1600 years, 40 different authors. All pointing in the same direction. That's just not natural. The Bible is also very unique in its circulation. The Bible has been copied and circulated more than, more extensively than any other book in history. In total, 428 million scriptures were distributed by the Bible societies in 2014. And that's up 7% from 2013. It's been on the bestseller list since the day records were kept. Those statistics are even more impressive when you consider the fact that of all the new books that are written and published every year, less than 1% makes it more than seven years. Well, it's also unique in its availability. The Bible is the single most translated book in history. 
It's written in over 1,700 different languages. No other book even comes close to its availability. So, in other words, that you know, people have made an effort to make this book available to anybody. It's also unique with regard to its durability. You know, this Bible has survived bans, burnings, ridicule, criticism. Kings, princes, and rulers have all tried to eradicate the Bible. And folks, they've been unsuccessful. They can't do it. The Bible's been subjected to more abuse, more perversion, more destructive criticism, and pure hatred than any other book. Yet it continues to stand the test of time while its critics are refuted and forgotten. But I think most of all, the Bible is unique with respect to the effect people claim it has on their personal lives. All right, the effect it has on people. You know, people read lots of books, usually finishing and then going on to the next one, but not the Bible. People read it, hopefully you, read it over and over. You know, they memorize it. They write songs about it. They, they carry it with them. They own multiple copies. You know, they, people who understand that it is a supernatural book, they spend time in it. Tan Nguyen, who was an officer in the Vietnam Army, he saw a woman reading a Bible. And he said, give us your Bible immediately and renounce its teaching. Well, the woman rose to make eye contact with Tan and she clutched her Bible to her breast and she offered no reply. She didn't say a thing. She just stood there hanging onto her Bible. So Tan decided to use force. Upon his orders, his soldiers began to stab the woman with their rifles, blooding her face. She still refused to surrender. She just stood there clutching her Bible. They slapped her again and again. They punched her in the face. They punched her in the stomach. Finally, the Bible fell from her limp, bloody hands, but only after she had died. Well, Tan picked up the Bible and he wiped the dust and blood from its cover. And he just couldn't understand why anyone would die for a book. Now, as the officer in charge of the incident, Tan kept the Bible and he began to read it out of curiosity. And he learned of the sacrifice of Christ from verses like 1 Peter 2, 23 and 24. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. Through reading about the suffering of Christ, Tan began to understand why the woman would risk her life and go through such a terrible beating for this book. And he prayed, Jesus, I know that you died for me. Please forgive me for hurting your people. From now on, I will love and protect them. And Tan now teaches his fellow believers in Vietnam how to stand firm in the face of persecution. That's a story from the Wycliffe Bible Translators. Why would people do, do that? Why would they die for that book? Is it that important? It is that important if you understand it. <coughs> In the most intimate moments, you know, the Bible is the book we turn to for comfort, healing, hope, because we believe its words are alive. No other book has that kind of effect on us because no other book is supernatural. So the Bible is unique. And then when you dig deeper into the evidence, you encounter a second discovery. Not only do people open the Bible because it's unique, but critics respect the Bible because it's authentic. Based on the evidence, 
Critical thinkers have concluded that the Bible is an accurate and credible ancient document. So accurate that it's earned their respect. Now, I'm talking about unbelievers. And in determining the authenticity of an ancient document, there's several tests that historians apply. The first is how many copies of the manuscript are there, still around, and how similar are they to one another? The higher number and the greater similarity, the more likely that the copies are true to the original writing. In the case of the New Testament, the vast number of ancient manuscripts, <coughs> excuse me, Kathy, will you give me a cup of coffee, hot coffee? In fact, there are more ancient copies of the New Testament than any other doctor, document in literature. There's more copies. Did you know the New Testament weighs in with an astounding 24,300 copies from the first few centuries? And did you know that as textual experts have studied these manuscripts from all over the Middle East and have discovered only minor variations, <coughs> excuse me, thanks, no, coffee's, I need the heat. It's definitely hot. <laughs> now I just burn my tongue. <laughs> they discovered only minor variations, and none of the variations, you know, destroyed the meaning of the passage that they found. Another evidence of the authenticity of the New Testament is the relatively short interval interval between manuscript dates and authorship dates. The shorter the span between the date of the oldest copy still in existence in the date of the original writing, the less likely the copy had deviated from the original. So what about the New Testament? Well, it was completed by AD 70, and the oldest fragment still in existence is John 18. It's dated at AD 125, an interval of only 55 years from the original writing. That's the shortest time span of any ancient work. That's why one scholar has concluded, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be guarded as beyond all doubt. <coughs> now, notice if he, sa- he says, if it were secular writing. In other words, that, you know, they don't like the idea that the Bible can prove itself. That bothers them. You can be sure that the text from which your Bible is translated into English is virtually identical to those that were written by Matthew, Paul, James, Luke, whoever. The other New Testament writers. Now, what about the Tanakh, <clears throat> the part of the Bible that people call the Old Testament? It was written long before the time of Christ, so how do we know it hasn't changed? Well, the authenticity of the Tanakh is confirmed by consistency of manuscripts over an incredibly long span of time. Let me explain what I mean. In 1948, uh, there was a printing of the book, Our Bible and Ancient Manuscripts, by the scholar Sir Frederick Kenyon. He wrote that he doubted scholars would ever find manuscript copies of the Hebrew text of the Old Testament that were older than the Masoretic text. All right, now the Masoretic text of the Tanakh was produced in 8900 by a group of Hebrew scholars known as the Masoretes. That's why it's called the Masoretic text, all right? Well, when Kenyon wrote his book in 1947, it was the oldest ancient manuscript of the entire Tanakh. But virtually at the same time that his book was coming off the presses, thousands of miles away, a young Arab boy was walking along the shore of the Dead Sea. And for fun, he picked up a stone and he randomly threw it at the cliffs and it went into one of the caves. And he heard some crashing, some shattering. 
So he crawled up to investigate, and he found a broken pottery jar with some old manuscripts, the first of the collection that came to be known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Soon, archaeologists were excavating caves throughout the area. They were amazed to find fragments of every book of the Tanakh and several complete copies. An investigation revealed that the scrolls had been produced at Qumran, which was a Jewish settlement which existed between 125 B.C. and A.D. 68. That means that the newly found manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls version of the Tanakh, had been produced around 100 B.C., which is almost a thousand years prior to the Masoretic text. So if errors or changes crept into the Tanakh over time, it would surely be discovered. You just compare the Masoretic text with the Dead Sea Scrolls and you find these differences. What they find? They found the variations over a thousand years amounted to minor spelling errors. A thousand years. Minor spelling errors. I can't even sign my name the same way twice. All right, yet Jewish scholars, these scribes, had been accurately transcribing Scripture for a millennium. That amazing consistency has led most scholars to conclude that the text of the Tanakh has been preserved from the time of the originals and that the Bible we read today contains the authentic writings of Moses and David and the prophets. That's supernatural. This book is just what God wants us to have. So it's unique, it's authentic. When you dig deeper into the evidence, you encounter a third discovery. Not only do people open the Bible because it's unique and authentic, it's accurate. It's accurate. Now, how do we know that what the Bible says happened really happened? I mean, how do we know for sure that there really was a man named Yeshua? I had a lady come to me who was taking a college course. And she goes, I'm taking a course on religion. Can you help? I'm like, Maybe. You know, <clears throat> she was supposed to write a paper proving that Yeshua existed. Okay, so I said, here's what you do. You write a paper proving the Bible is the Word of God. And in that Bible is Yeshua, ergo, Yeshua existed. Okay, I don't know how else you're going to do it. So she approached it that way. She got an A on her term paper, by the way. <clears throat> she wrote me and let me know that she was thankful for that. But how do we know what it, say, you know, what it says about things? What it says, you know, how do we know there really was a man, Yeshua, who claimed to be God? How do we know some guy named Abraham really did become the father of many nations? How do we know that? Well, the greatest evidence of the Bible's accuracy is the continuing archaeological confirmation of disputed historical details. Jewish archaeological expert Nelson Block states this, It may be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. That's a powerful statement, people. Nothing they have ever found, you know, archaeologically has refuted anything the Bible says. Even when there have seemed to be contradictions with the most up-to-date discoveries. In other words, there's been times when they say, hey, the Bible says this and we can't back that. There's no evidence of that at all. He says the eventual evidence maintained the accuracy and integrity of the Bible. For example, in Daniel 5, the Bible references a man named Belshazzar as king of Babylon. But the historical records of the time held that another man was king of Babylon. And that was a clear-cut contradiction. And of course, you know, the people, the skeptics of the Bible attack us with something like that. But in 1956, archaeologists unearthed three stones that contained the inscribed information that solved the problem. It seems that the man who was king decided to lead his armies into battle, so he temporarily installed 
Belshazzar as king. So once again, the Bible was way ahead of the curve. All right, It was true in what it said. An important recent discovery, this might surprise you this is recent, is evidence for the existence of King David. That was a big argued thing, you know. I mean, the Bible says that young David slew the Philistine giant, Goliath, all right? And he went on to found Jerusalem. And David's story is a pretty exciting tale. You know, you got murder, you got adultery, you got deceit, extraordinary faith and courage. The story is so fantastic that a lot of biblical scholars, I use that word scholar loosely when I say it this way, a lot of biblical scholars have thought that David must have been made up. I mean, the story is just so out there, you know? Then came what Seymour Gitton of the W.F. Albright Institute of Archaeological Research in eastern Jerusalem calls one of the greatest finds of the 20th century. In 1993, Israeli archaeologists digging in the Golan Heights unearthed a piece of stone pottery from an ancient monument. Inscribed on it in ancient Aramaic were the words, King of Israel and House of David. Well, the story so shook some scholars that they insisted the find was phony or the inscription translated incorrectly. That can't be right, all right? But a year later, archaeologists found more fragments of the monument with additional inscriptions referring to the ancient king. And today, new scholarly consensus is that David was real. How about that? They're catching up with the Bible. But here's what they say. They say the consensus, David was real, not because the Bible says so says Ronnie Reich of the Israeli Antiquities Authority. He said, but because archaeology has found it. That's how we know it's true. See, they don't want to give any credence to the Bible. Recent expeditions at Shechem, where the Bible says Abraham built an altar to God, proved an organized community existed during Abraham's time there nearly 4,000 years ago. An archaeologist sifting through a 2,000-year-old garbage dump at Masada in southern Israel unearthed a wine jug inscribed with the name King Herod. It was the first object ever found bearing the name of the great Judean king mentioned in the Gospels. So see, they, they argued these things are not true, and then the archaeology proves they are true, and then they're like, oh. You know, then they try to prove that find not true, you know, because they just don't want the Bible to be true. All right? Bottom line is, when it comes to the issue of reliability, the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that the Bible is authentic, accurate portrayal of real people and real events. It's just, it is, people. You know, it's one thing to say that the Bible's supernatural because it's unique, and it's authentic, and it's accurate. But one of the strongest evidence to me is the Bible contains pre-written history. We call that prophecy. Because it's supernatural, we understand that in its totality, it was inspired by God. And that's exactly what the Bible claims for itself. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, when Paul writes this to Timothy, what does he mean by Scripture? Here, specifically, he's talking about the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. All right? Because that's all they had at that time. All right? It's inspired. And look, at it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Training in righteousness so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What this means is that through the Holy Spirit, Yahweh revealed Himself in His plans to particular individuals who wrote down that message. Now, when we talk about inspiration, 
You got to understand, we're not talking about mechanical dictation. It's not like, you know, Paul sat down and he took the quill and he closed his eyes and man, it just scribbled all over and he looked at it and he goes, wow, that's really cool. Look what God wrote. All right, there's some people believe that, okay? No. What happened is he used Paul. He used Paul's experiences. He used Paul's education. He used Paul's life and he inspired him to write what he wanted him to write. Using his own talents, his own language, his own style. The claim of the Bible is that God controlled its writing. I believe He not only controlled the writing, He controlled its assembly. And I think the Bible that we have is what God wants us to have. Now, I'm not discounting books outside the Bible. I think the pseudepigrapha is very valuable for understanding the mindset of first century Judaism. But I think we have the Bible God wants us to have. Well, how do we know the Bible is the inspired word of the living God? How do we know that you know God really inspired us? I think the strongest evidence is fulfilled prophecy. No other book in the world contains the kind of specific prophecies found all through the pages of the Bible. There's no comparison, for example, between the oracles of Nostradamus and the prophecies of the Tanakh about Yeshua the Christ. I mean, the prophecies of the Tanakh are often so obvious that many scholars have unsuccessfully attempted to assign later dates to the prophecies so they can say it was written after the fact. That's why they're so accurate. But that just doesn't work, okay? Let me give you an amazing example from the prophet Ezekiel that Gary read this morning. Now, he made a number of predictions about the destruction of Tyre. Tyre was a Phoenician stronghold. Tyre was a fairly significant city. It was a large city on the west coast of Phoenicia, now known as Palestine. And the word of Yahweh came to Ezekiel in verse 2 of chapter 26, telling him about the destruction of this city. Verse 2 says, Son of man, because Tyre has said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, the gateway of the people is broken. It is open to me. I shall be filled. And now she is laid waste. In other words, because Tyre mocked Jerusalem, you know, and said, yeah, we're secure. You're going to get it. Then we have this prophecy. Now, Gary already read it. I'm going to read it again because you got to get what's going on here. Okay. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh. When you see God in all caps, it's yod heh vav from the Hebrew. It's Yahweh. Whether it's God that's all caps or Lord that's all caps, that is the name Yahweh. The Lord Yahweh, behold, I am against you, O Tyre. Those are words you don't want to hear. You don't want to hear that God is against you. You're going to lose, okay? I guarantee you. I will bring up many nations against you. Now, pay attention to that. Not a single nation. I'm going to bring many nations against Tyre. All these things are important. As the sea brings up its waves, they will destroy the walls of Tyre Break down her towers. I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. Now, hang on to that thought. That's kind of interesting. You're going to scrape the debris and make it a bare rock? Now, why would you do that? She will be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken, declares the Lord Yahweh. She will become spoil for the nations. In other words, the nations are going to just take everything from her. Her daughters who are on the mainland. Now, keep that in mind, too, the mainland. Her daughters on the mainland will be slain by the sword. They will know that I am Yahweh. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, people, this is not nebulous. There's some guy, some year, going to come and destroy the city. No. Very specific. It's going to be Nebuchadnezzar. 
the king of Babylon. He's going to come and do it. He's the king of kings with horses, chariots, cavalry, and a great army. He will slay your daughters on the mainland. Again, this idea of the mainland. Hang on to that. With the sword. He will make siege walls against you, cast up a ramp against you, and raise up a large shield against you. The blow of his battering rams will direct against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the multitude of his horses, the dust raised by them will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of cavalry and wagons and chariots when he enters the gates as men enter a city that is breached. With the hoofs of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people with the sword. Now, if you're tired, you need to, and Ezekiel's saying this, you need to pay attention, okay? This sounds pretty scary here. Your strong pillars will come down to the ground. Also, they will make a spoil of your riches and prey of your merchandise, break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. Pay attention to that. That's what? They're going to they're destroy the city and they're going to pick it all the city up and throw it in the water. Why would you do that? So I will silence the sound of your songs. There's not going to be any joy in the city. The sound of your harps will be heard no more. No more joy in this city. I will make you a bare rock. Again, this idea of being bare. You will be a place for the spreading of nets. You will be built no more for I, Yahweh, have spoken, declares the Lord Yahweh. Folks, that's pretty detailed stuff, okay? I mean, that's not some kind of general prophecy about, you know, something, you know, like people give in churches today, someday, somewhere, somehow you will be blessed. Oh, thanks so much. I feel better now, you know? This is specific. This great Phoenician city from the 7th century B.C. controlled Phoenicia. It had strong walls. Archaeology says the walls were 100 feet high, 150 feet high, and 15 feet thick. That's a serious wall, okay? And it was flourishing when Joshua led Israel into Canaan. Hiram, the first king, Hiram the first was its king. And Hiram helped David build the palace, and according to 1 Kings 5.10, he helped Solomon build the temple. So, we're familiar with this city. Now, here's what actually happened, as verified by secular historians. In 590 B.C., Ezekiel makes this prediction, the thing we just read. Ezekiel lays this out. Four years later, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes and attacks the coastal city of Tyre. All right, Nebuchadnezzar comes with his army. He laid siege on the city. Now, how they did it in those days, they'd come with their army and they'd surround the city. Sometimes they'd even build another wall. So you got the city walls and you got this space and you got another wall. And they're guarding the second wall. And the idea is, we're going to starve you to death. We're going to wait it out. You know, it's a, it's a 150 high wall, feet high walls and 15, that's a hard wall to knock down. So we'll just lay this siege and we'll just wait. And so they waited 13 years. That's a long battle. You know, these guys must have got tired. Are they ever going to give up? You know, 13 years until they finally got into the city. The people on the inside eventually began to starve. And so they gave up. Well, it took 13 years from 585 to 573. Finally, the city surrendered because they were all dying. And Nebuchadnezzar broke down the walls. He broke down the towers. He destroyed the city. He did every single thing Ezekiel said he would do. And he most likely never read Ezekiel. Okay? He's just carrying out the will of God. All right? 
going at it here, tearing it down. When he got in the city, he didn't find any spoils. Because they had used the fleet they had to take the spoils to an island a half a mile off the coast. During the 13 years, they're taking their ships and they're sending everything off to this island a half mile away. And Ezekiel said that the army, Nebuchadnezzar's army, would receive no wages from Tyre. Interesting prophecy. That's exactly what happened. When they got there, all the valuables were gone. So Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't have a naval force. He couldn't go get them. So he's like, wow, we went through all this work. You know, that's a lot of work. Well, look what Ezekiel 29, 18 and 19 says. Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald. Every soldier shoulder was rubbed bare. In other words, they put a lot of work into destroying this city. But he and his army had no wages from Tyre for their labor. They got nothing for it. For the labor he had performed against it. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh. This is, this is kind of interesting. You didn't get any labor, so guess what? I will give you the land of Egypt. You didn't get anything from Tyre, so go to Egypt. To Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, he will carry off her wealth and capture her spoil and seize her plunder, and it will be wages for his army. In other words, God said, you didn't get paid for the last job. I'll give you the next job you get paid, okay? You take the money. So he conquers the city, but now the city's all out on the island. It became the new city. That city flourished on that island for 250 years. But only part of the prophecy was fulfilled. You know, the part about Nebuchadnezzar, the part about destroying the wall, smashing it down, slaughtering the people, not getting the spoil. But not all the prophecy was fulfilled, you know. It says in verse 4, I will scrape her debris from her, make her a bare rock. That wasn't fulfilled. I'm going to throw your stones and your timbers and the debris in the water. That's just nuts, you know. that. Why would anyone do that? He says, I'll make you a bare rock. So the ruins were still there. The city had been destroyed, but all the rubble, everything's just laying there. And 250 years later, a 24-year-old kid by the name of Alexander the Great showed up. He had 33,000 infantrymen. He had 15,000 cavalry. He had just defeated the Persians. He's on his way to Egypt. So he stops by Tyre basically to get some help. You know, my army's tired. They're worn out. He says, so he he gives word to the to Tyre, I want you to supply my men and my horses and my army. We need some help. Give us some food. Give us some you know nourishment so we can go on with the battle. And they basically said, get lost, you young punk. We're not helping you. We're an island, in case you didn't notice. You don't have any ships there with you, so too bad. Well, it wasn't really good to tick Alexander off, okay? Um, he didn't like that at all. He didn't have a fleet, so he decided to... Make a bridge, make a road to the island. So he did exactly what Ezekiel the prophet said he would do. He had his, all his men pick up, start picking up all that scrap and throwing it in the water. And they just kept throwing it in the water and they built a road all the way over to the island city. I mean, what? why would a conqueror ever do that? Well, God knew what was going on when he gave this prophecy. Why waste your time once you conquer the city, picking up the stuff and throwing it in the ocean? Well, because you now you want to get out to that island. That's why he's doing it. That's exactly what happened. So Alexander did it. He took all the debris. He built a 2,000 foot long, 200 foot wide causeway with the debris all the way out to the island. Now the island itself was fortified. Okay, it was, They had powerful high walls that reached all the way down to the sea. 
And so as Alexander got closer, he realized he's going to have to get over those walls. So in order to pull it off, he built these massive towers. They say they were 165 feet high, according to the records, 20 stories high. And they held artillery, and they had a bridge on them, a drop bridge. So they just, as they built the causeway, they pushed these things up, firing at them as they went, because the people on the walls are firing back, of course. They get up near the wall, they drop the drawbridge, and they walked in. Now, in the process, while they're building this, of course, the people in Tyre, they're not just sitting by watching. Look at these, what are these nuts doing? No, they realized what was going on, so they're shooting arrows at them, they're catapulting stones over at them, they're trying to do whatever they can. So Alexander invents this thing they call tortoises. There are these big shells, and the men wore these shells on them. And while they're working, they're covered, basically. So these things are banging off these tortoise shells that they built while they're throwing stuff and getting closer and closer. It took them seven months to build that causeway. Some of these contractors ought to hire him to get something done, you know. Seven months. I mean, that's a, that's a big feat to get that done in seven months, all right? So he got in there. They dropped the thing. They went across the wall. He murdered 8,000 people right away. Within a few months, he had killed 7,000 more people. He sold 30,000 of their people into slavery, and he fulfilled every single detail of the prophecy. And though the city of Jerusalem has been rebuilt 17 times, Tyre has never been rebuilt. And that's exactly what God said. You will be rebuilt no more. Now today, the original mainland site of Tyre is as bare as a rock. And you know what they do there? The fishermen dry their nets there, just like Ezekiel said. There's a city named Tyre, but it exists only as a small fishing village and is down the coast from the ancient city. Ezekiel couldn't have guessed that those things would happen. Not in a million years. I mean, the story of Tyre and other that's just one prophecy, people. They give evidence that God directed the writings of this book. Pre-written history of prophecy makes you ask, how did the Bible know that stuff? Well, the New Testament tells us how it knew. It says no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. In other words, men didn't write this. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The men who wrote the Bible, they did so under inspiration. That's how they could write accurate stuff like this. You know, fulfilled prophecies from the Tanakh concerning Yeshua also point to divine inspiration. You know, there's a lot of prophecies about Yeshua. And the writing of the Tanakh was completed several hundred years before the birth of Christ, so there's no way that these predictions came after the fact. You know that there's over 300 prophecies, 300, that were literally fulfilled in Yeshua's life. 300! What are the chances of so many prophecies could all come true in the life of one man? What do you think the chances of that are? 300! Well, Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, says this, The probability that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled just eight of the prophecies is one in ten to the seventeenth power. That's one with seventeen zeros after it. If you want to write a check, that's the number to put on it, okay? I mean, eight prophecies, 300 were fulfilled in Christ. Stoner says the chances of eight of them are one and ten to the seventh. Now, in order to you saying, ah, oh, that's a lot, I can't comprehend that. All right, let me give you a picture to help you understand how vast this is. All right, state of Texas. You recognize that, right? Anybody ever driven across Texas? 
Oh my word, you just think you're never going to get it. It's a huge, huge stake, okay? Alright. If you were to take silver dollars, 10 to the 17th power, silver dollars, and lay them on the state of Texas, you cover the entire state, they would be two feet deep. Silver dollars, two feet deep, cover the entire state. Now you take one of those silver dollars and mark it. This is the one. Then you go in Texas and you stir the whole pile up and you put it somewhere in that pile. Then you blind somebody on the outskirts of Texas. You put a blindfold on them and you say, okay, go on in, walk around all you want in Texas, stop at a certain spot and pick up a number. The chances of him picking up the marked silver dollar are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. I mean, if I had a pile right here of silver dollars two feet high and stirred them up and put something in, what do you think the chances are of you getting the right one? And the whole state of Texas? That, you know, that's for eight messianic prophecies coming to pass in one individual. And remember, there's 300 fulfilled in Christ. And that's why one researcher, one researcher said, God designed fulfilled prophecy to be an open demonstration of the divine origin of scriptures. It's too clear, people. It's too obvious for anybody who you know, really wants to look at it. Over 3,000 times the Bible says, thus says Yahweh. The Bible claims to be God-breathed. It never makes a claim that it's just a good book. To disagree with biblical inspiration is to disagree with the Bible and Yahweh Himself. And I think, believers, it should be clear to all who look into it that the Bible is a supernatural book. It is the very Word of God. And because it's true, we should pay close attention to its promises and its commands. The Bible teaches us that apart from Yeshua, no one can have a relationship with God. Now you'll hear people today say, well, I serve God this way, or I serve this God, you know, all gods are the same. They all, you know, well, that's not what the Bible says. John 5.23 so, says, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Now watch. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Apart from Christ, you cannot worship God. It's impossible. The Bible's God's Word. It's authoritative. And it states there's only one way to heaven and that is through Yeshua the Christ. To reject the claims of Scripture is to perish for all eternity. Now believers, since we believe I know I'm preaching to the choir. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. And I think we believe it's a supernatural book. Then my question for you this morning is, if we know that, shouldn't we be spending time in it? Now wait a minute. I know you got excuses, right? Everybody's got excuses. Okay? Why well, this was I that you know? Are you too busy for God? You know, you claim to be a Christian, you claim to know God, but I just don't want to spend any time with it. It's just kind of crazy. Because this book is supernatural, it can change your life. It can give you comfort in life's darkest hours. It can strengthen you through life's deepest trials. Because in this book, Yahweh reveals Himself. Look at Psalm 9, verse 10. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. Now, if you've been around any length of time, you understand the term name there refers to character. 
It doesn't mean Yeshua or Yahweh name in that sense. It means those who know your character, those who know you, they'll put their trust in you. But here's the thing, people. To know God's character is to be able to trust Him. Do you know Him well enough to trust Him? In every situation of life, in every trial, in every deal that happens to us, can you trust Him? If you can't trust Him, it's because you don't know Him well enough. Because if you know Him, you know He's trustworthy, you know He can be trusted. But the only way we're going to grow in our trust of Yahweh is to spend time with Him. And I'm telling you, the only way you can spend time with Him is in this book. He revealed Himself in the Scriptures. He wrote this to us so we would know what He wants from us. Who He is. How He loves us. What He's done for us. There's no other way you're going to find that out. As we said, most churches aren't even preaching this book, so you're not going to hear it at church. You know, you're not going to find too much good stuff on the internet. Why not just get in the book itself and find out what's in there? Whenever I'm in a biblical discussion with somebody, an argument, I try to stay away from those. They're not too profitable. But whenever we're in an argument, I always stop and say, hey, have you read the whole Bible? And you get this funny expressions like, what's that got to do with it? Have you? No. The part I'm saying is true is in the part you didn't read. <laughs> Argument's over. Come back after you've read the book. I mean, people, is it foolish? You're arguing a position you never even read the whole book. You don't know what's in there. Read it. And then guess what? Reread it. And reread it. I've read it every year for, I don't know how many years, every time I read it, guess what? I'm seeing new stuff. Wow, where'd that come from? It's amazing. Today, I see in the church this, this desperate lack of trust to God. And I say this over and over, but I don't care, you know, you, I think all of us have been more affected by the health, wealth, gospel than we care to realize or admit. We all have this thinking. God owes us. Everything better go right. Everything better go good. God, why did you do? God, why did you let this? How did how could you? You know, everything's supposed to be wonderful. And that's the health, wealth, gospel. And we've, it's, we've got it into our minds. But you know, as you get in the scriptures and you get to know God, and you get to know the men who knew God, you don't see that attitude at all. You know, Job says, you know, in the worst situation, you know, he's laying in a, a pile of mud with pottery, scraping the scabs off himself. And he says, you know, though he slays me, yet I will trust in him. Because he knew God. He knew him. And that's why when disaster hit, what did Job do? He worshipped. He said, hey, that's okay. I came here naked. I'm going naked. You're worthy of my praise and adoration no matter what you do. He knew God. And people, that's what we need. That's what the church needs today more desperately than anything else. They need to understand who Yahweh is, and to walk with Him. And when you walk with Him, I don't care where you walk, it'll be a joyous walk. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Scriptures. God, forgive us for our negligence. We say we love You and seem to ignore You so often. Give us a hunger, Lord, to walk with You. To know You in an intimate way. To have closer fellowship with You than we do with anybody. Teach us from your word, Lord. Open the scriptures to us. Thank you, Father, for just the privilege we have 
to have the Word of God, to freely be able to study it and learn of it. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Amen.